What's up, everybody? Another episode of AST. It is January 2nd, 2021. And 2020 has been an interesting year. So uh, I haven't seen a lot of people, but me and Connor talk a lot. And so we decided to do a little open discussion. I think for both of us, this year was quite the learning experience, but also quite a lot of bullshit. And so we've been talking on the phone a lot. We wanted to turn one of these on to a podcast. And Connor, what are we starting out with today? 33000 $91. And how long ago did you check? Less than 60 seconds ago. All right. So Bitcoin is going to be a pretty talked about subject, but it relates to a lot of other things that I think we'll get into in a little bit. But what, do you own Bitcoin? And if you do, why? I do own Bitcoin. And the list of reasons is uh, too many to count right now. We can dive into many of them today. But at the end of the day, I think it is a source of truth. It's monetary truth. It's a scarce asset. And if you don't see things going from physical to digital and you're not paying attention to the wave, then you're missing out. But that's just kind of uh, the tip of the iceberg right there, if that. Yeah, so it's 33000 and I couldn't get my Coinbase Pro app to work, so I just used the standard Coinbase but I bought more and I've like pretty much been buying more since approximately March. And in hindsight, it's always 2020, right? Because we started to talk about this on the phone right when I started to kind of realize what was happening with the stock market. And, you know, I had some money to allocate for the first time in my life as well. At the same time, I was super busy because interest rates got dropped by the Fed and the housing market surprisingly stagnated for just a little bit while everyone got acclimated and figured out how to do business with COVID. Um, and then there was some pent up demand. And so I did my own homework, but as you know, I definitely got my information from a trusted source that I paid for. And so it was a it was one of those moments where I allocated out pretty ignorantly, but I knew that fundamentally that this was an opportunity and I had enough money for the first time in my life to do something with it. Well, and I think that brings up a really good point because you say ignorantly, but at the end of the day, you have to, in order to be a good investor, in order to be good at anything in life and just making decisions, you have to make decisions and the right decisions with incomplete information. And I think we live in a world with an abundance of information, which has given people, um, it's given them the ability to be comfortable with certainty in the information that they have. And when they're faced with a situation that they have incomplete information, a lot of people aren't able to make decisions. So I don't know about you, we've been accumulating for many months now, um, even you know, years, depending on how long you know, you've been holding for. But there's still a lot of people who just aren't believers. And I'm not here to convince people to be believers, but at the end of the day, if you just look at people's mindsets around the asset, a lot of people just aren't able to do the research. And even if they do, they're not able to feel comfortable with it because they don't know how to operate in a world where they don't have all the information. Yeah, and it's really time-consuming to decipher 
pertinent information from unpertinent information and it requires a lot of residual understanding of different things and I've accumulated those over the years just from running a business being in the um, mortgage-backed securities market which ties to the stock market and bonds and different things like that but it's the first time where I'm like okay what 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 the hell does one do right and it, that being said is hindsight's 2020 because of course the price back in March when it dipped was like four grand. And so I, I had all the sources of funds to allocate anything I wanted to at that juncture, but like I couldn't have conviction. I was too scared. You know what I mean? But you got to get your feet wet is what I told myself because it fundamentally made sense when compared to gold, which is something I also allocated to. And I didn't quite understand it at first because I thought of these as like investments, right? And although Bitcoin might be, when you look at gold, in my opinion, now versus before, it's not an investment, right? It is a insurance policy. And that is why some people store them in other political geographical areas to where they live. And it's, 6,000 years that it's pretty much been the same type of asset class for humans as a store of value. And so, yes, of course you would like it to appreciate, but gold in this day and age is really just an insurance policy on your other assets becoming worth less money, which theoretically would drive the price of gold. Gold, however, has ETFs and other things that manipulate it, and the amount of gold is unknown, and it's harder to know how much is coming out of the ground, and there's physical restrictions on it for storing. It's encumbersome, but it's still another valuable asset class that I think will survive forever, honestly. But there were so many similarities to Bitcoin and it had been around for a decade and it had been talked about. And so it wasn't like I was totally ignorant on it. It's just I never spent any real time on it. Yeah. And I think you, you bring up gold, you're bringing up debt, you're bringing up, you know, price appreciation, storehold of wealth. I think at the end of the day, uh, the reason people have recently begun to. And when I say recently, I mean over the last six months to a year, why people have gravitated towards assets, alternative assets like Bitcoin and gold or silver is because of monetary policy and fiscal policy and just the expansion of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. And when you inject, you know, trillions of dollars into the market, obviously assets are going to appreciate that is going to allow people to then increase their debt burden because of the excess collateral that they will have as their assets increase or appreciate, and then they buy more, and then that drives the price up even more. And it's just this self-enforcing cycle, which is why a lot of people, they're seeing that if they're just gonna print more money, obviously money is worth less, so let's go to something that's finite, which is one of the main reasons I think many people go towards Bitcoin and gold. The way I look at gold, and Bitcoin is basically everything that gold has that's a positive. I would like to say Bitcoin has. I have yet to have someone challenge me on that. Maybe you could. Um, and then a lot of the 
negatives, uh, the, the, the downsides of gold, I think Bitcoin capitalizes on. So if, if you want to send gold, if you want to buy own gold, you have to own it physically and it's difficult to send to someone or send anywhere unless you physically drive it there or hire someone to drive it there. You're probably not going to ship it through the mail. Maybe you would. I don't know. But it just makes sense to have things digital and no longer physical. And I, I, think, I think people are starting to realize that. Institutional investors are starting to realize that. That's what's driving up a lot of the price right now. But at the end of the day, people don't like it when their money is worth less. And the best way to do that is to put it into something that's finite. Um, gold, which, is, which is scarce, you're saying. Scarce, yes. And, and Bitcoin is finite, but scarcity is the same principle, right? That's why gold held it for so long. And that's what I mean by there's still more being produced. The, the cost of production, who, who knows what happens with the, with the amount of gold on, on the surface able to be bought by humans. But what, I'll, what I will challenge you on, well, I'm not saying you're wrong, right? But what I'm saying is, is, is the mindset and why I think if you have a certain amount of funds that you have to think about and decide what to do with them, Versus just having them all in your place of certainty, which is the FDI-insured savings account, which goes up to 250K. Most people don't really have to worry about anything beyond that, right? So it's certainty. Whether it's really certain or not, it's certainty mindset. So one thing that I innately like about real estate is it's tangible and you can touch it, right? And the same is true of gold. And if you house your own gold, yeah, there poses a lot of risks because you physically have it and you actually do mail it. That's fucking how you get it around. But if you, if you do something different, which requires another layer of education and, and honestly connections in order to help you with that is that somebody else stores it for you and they have an operation of distribution that pretty much works like an electronic ledger on your account statement. And you get the fees for transporting the gold on the fucking account statement. But it, it, it's still a, because you got to remember, I just don't think a lot of the population even has gold as a primary insurance policy in an asset class, right? So the level of adoption for mindset would be, in my opinion, to maybe get into something physical so you understand the fundamentals, and then you can easily swallow or easy, more easily swallow the transition into something that is digital that is not a hard asset. And, and if you have a certain amount of funds to allocate, I don't, I don't think having both of them is a bad play. I just think that for many people in this day and age that don't have either, Bitcoin's actually way easier to get into because, dude, it's, it's not easy to get into gold and figure it out and figure out how to do it properly. How to store it properly, how to make sure it's safe. I mean, there's and a, there's and a, how to liquidate it properly, too. Yeah. Um, and it's not like an exchange that we all come to know and trust for the most part. And there's another layer of self protection for Bitcoin, but dude, it's foreign. It's foreign. Right. And so that's what I mean about, I understand why it took me so long to have the conviction to really follow Bitcoin, but it started with getting your feet wet. It started with getting your feet wet because I don't know about anybody else, but if like I don't have some skin in the game, like I'm not going to follow it and learn about it, even if it's on the horizon for the future. Like I'm just not. Yeah. And I think you have to have a vested interest in it. You have to understand it. 
And I think a lot of the reason why people I know plenty of people who have said on this run up to 33k and who knows like it could end tomorrow we could it could go to zero I don't know it's unlikely but it's possible the reason a lot of people keep saying oh I'm gonna wait till it crashes I'm gonna wait till it crashes I'm gonna wait till it crashes and or buy the dip the reason they keep saying that is because they continue to do the same thing and they don't get a vested interest but once you get a vested interest it is now within your interest to understand the asset, why it's performing the way it is, why it's going up, why it's going down, what some of those key drivers are. And once you come to that conclusion, you'll realize that I I theorize that this bull run is probably going to continue into the foreseeable future as institutions continue to buy Bitcoin. I think a lot of other people feel the same way. It's not necessarily yeah, but like what kind of money in relation like, dude, like, you know, it might be obvious that monetary policy is injecting trillions into the economy. But most people only see the actual stimulus bills that get passed. Most people don't really realize that they're actually, you know, greasing the wheels on the repo market, which is overnight lending. You know, they're buying mortgage backed securities to keep rates low. You're talking about one hundred billion dollars a month. You're talking about corporate bonds you're talking about just like billions of dollars on a monthly cycle into the hundreds that it makes it actually really hard to fathom um and what that does to your money is seductive you know what i mean your purchasing power is very very seductive the the statistics that they use on inflation are are ones that maybe don't tell the whole picture of somebody's actual buying habits of today in order to live their life well and and also when you think about when, when they inject stimulus into the economy, and when you say we, or when, when they, I'm, I'm referring to the Federal Reserve, uh, and, and our politicians who pass these bills, when they do that, like recessions, yes, they are unfortunate. They cause pain. And I think sometimes that is a good thing. I would never wish pain on even my worst enemy, right? You don't want that. But like it, it keeps people disciplined. And when you continue to allow people to live under the illusion that money is just going to keep coming in they're going to continue to spend it they're going to continue to become over leveraged and i'm just talking right now on like an an individual level but then when you think about it on like a corporate or institutional level what that leverage will do to ceos or investment managers over the long term it just creates this massive bubble that eventually will pop and what that means is assets start to get repossessed or people start defaulting. Price on discovery happens is what happens. Yeah. Like like the real true value price, because we monetize everything, right? We, we, we price everything. Price discovery happens when recessions happen, when there's not interventions to present, prevent the uh, recession. So it's called a correction. Yes. Because it goes back to where it, you know, intrinsically should be, where the market thinks it should be. And unfortunately, don't get me wrong, I think the government has made a lot of mistakes with the lockdowns. And I think that they definitely did need to make up for that by sending checks out to people and helping bailing businesses out and things like that. But there's also just a lot of other money included in this. They're not being very efficient, in my opinion, with how they're allocating the funds. Um, They could be doing a much more disciplined job. And they could also have just been a little bit more hands off in the first place and not force businesses to close when science says it's you know maybe not even necessary to close some types of businesses and we don't have to get into that topic but at the end of the day these politicians are trying to cover themselves cover their ass because they know that if they don't 
it's going to come back to bite them two or four years from now when they're yes. up for re-election. But that's okay because if we print this money now, I can get re-elected in four years. At least I'm covered for another two to four years. And then generations down the line when this bubble pops, someone else can pay for it in taxes because that's where the money's coming from. Yeah, but, but, but dude, uh, theoretically, you know, the bubble is supposed to pop. And, and it has popped many times in my life. Did I understand them to the fullest in 2009? No. Um, but corrections have been allowed to happen even with the intervention, right? Like, yes, they did some things over the course, even back to the Great Depression. But it was allowed to correct itself. So we'll see what happens in the future in 2021. But it's it's it will correct itself. But it's looking like the objective is to not allow that to happen and to really just push right through this uh, pandemic that translates into a lot of loss in GDP, which just means unfortunate shit to Americans. And so how long does that last and in what scope does it continue? And I just think the washout effect is not yet been seen. So like when you look at any investment or your dollars or like your life situation, whether you're unemployed or whatever, a lot has happened in 2020, but for some reason to me, it also could easily feel like not a lot has happened because you're, you're really just either getting unemployment checks or still working and you're not spending money in the same habitual behaviors because entertainment is basically uh off limits and so the people that are employed have to spend their money elsewhere which is partially why housing is really crazy home depot lows and those things are getting a benefit right but what happens when the rest of the opportunity to spend money opens up like how much money in discretionary income is really there can it support all of the businesses that were artificially supported through the pandemic and the ones that got closed down and didn't make it, you know, those are gone. So does it wash out to be where there's actually enough productivity in the economy to continue on? Otherwise, what is the next 12 months of spending look like in stimulus after the new administration, uh, gets gets in office because right now we're in limbo of an I don't know. Yeah, and I you brought up a couple points there. So, one I want to address is like zombie companies. So, and expectations that are being set by just reckless stimulus. Well, now zombie individuals technically well, exist yes, too. As, as yeah, of course, but um the problem is is that one the expectation has now been set that if I fail or if I cannot make ends meet, the government will help me out, which is great because, like I said, you don't want people to suffer or be in pain. But unfortunately, at the end of the day, someone has to suffer and you just have to wonder how long are we going to allow this to boil up and who's going to ultimately be getting the short end of the stick. So that's number one. Number two is you have these zombie companies who shouldn't be surviving according to the markets, but they're getting stimulus because it's reckless stimulus and it's not going to the 
companies that need it, like restaurants, who are being forced to close down against their will, even though they'd probably be able to survive. I've worked in a restaurant. I know plenty of restaurant owners. I know many restaurants can survive this if they're given the opportunity to. And let the market speak for itself. And let the market speak for itself. But the problem is, is that now they're being forced to fail, essentially. And this is in Minnesota, especially because Wisconsin is actually getting the benefit of Minnesota being closed because they are fully operational at their entertainment and restaurants. And so that's also a transfer wealth right out of the states, right? And that's where the inequality of opportunity is happening. Yeah. And and so what's going to happen is is you have you then have companies that get, you know, either bailed out or they're able to survive by just getting floated money by the government, which they will probably never have to end up repaying. And which is the airlines like Delta for instance, yeah. but there's many people that say though those are necessary for our economy and I you know, I don't disagree, but the reckless irresponsibility of their management, I mean, they had $80 billion that they bought their own stock back with, and that theoretically could have lasted them all through this entire time. And instead, it's literally gone. It's evaporated money. The stock price took a shit, so it's literally gone. Well, and that's something we can dive into later is like incentives and where incentives lie. You know, the people who are making those decisions of, of stock buybacks, where, where do their incentives lie? Well, their incentives lie with serving the board of directors and shareholders and themselves. And many of those decision makers have vested interest in increasing the stock price, which for those of you who don't know what stock buybacks are, think of it as money, free money to your stock price. And if you own stock, it goes up, increases your wealth subsequently. Um, It's just kind of odd to take your revenue generating activities to do that, right? Yes. It's kind of odd. Yes. Um, but I'd like to go back to Bitcoin. And it stifles or, innovation, right? Because that money could be used to make a better company. And that and that's like really what that's what the free debt, market is. That's what that's what capitalism truly is, yes, right? Yes. And, that, and that, that's one thing I wanted to go back to with with Bitcoin is it is free market at its greatest because you don't have that's a, this is a you asked me I think one of the first questions was why do I like Bitcoin or why do I own Bitcoin? Yes. Another reason is there's nobody making decisions on this. Satoshi Nakamoto, who was the creator of Bitcoin, along with another group of developers, he created it under a pseudonym. Nobody know who he or she or they are, um, if it's a group. And they basically vanished um, shortly after they released the the source code. And it's it's open source, so people can continue to innovate um, on top of like its creation. But there's nobody making decisions. It's strictly the algorithmic protocol of Bitcoin, which is the blockchain, which that was thrown around. That term was thrown around a ton in like the early 2010s, shortly after Bitcoin was released and is very buzzwordy. But really, that is fundamentally what makes Bitcoin unique. And because people there's no third party intermediary that makes decisions on who gets money, at what rate they get money, things of that nature it allows it to operate as a free market and you don't have someone injecting millions or billions or trillions more Bitcoin into this virtual or digital economy. It's fixed at 21 million and there's probably two or 3 million that are lost in the circulation and in hardware wallets that'll never be retrieved. So and, that and there's only about more. 3 million left. 18 and some change have already been uh, generated. Yeah, exactly. And, 
every four years it halves. So the rate at which it, and, and let's just break this down because <laughs> I don't know who's listening and who knows what their familiarity is with Bitcoin. I'm sure many people are familiar and I'm sure maybe about 50% or less of the people listening have some background in like basic economics 101. It's like supply and demand. Yes. So if you take anything away from this conversation and if someone were to ask you in the future, like, well, why is Bitcoin going up? Think of it this way. Bitcoin is fixed. There's 21 million that can go, that can be created. And the rate at which it is produced, it decreases by 50% every four years. Right now, I think we're sitting at nine Bitcoin being produced every single hour. So that's like 216 Bitcoin produced per day. And because there's a limited amount of Bitcoin being produced, and then you have this, so supply is, is increasing, but slowly, supply is increasing slowly, and you have this wall of money from both retail and institutional investors who are now interested in Bitcoin. And retail as individuals. And retail as individuals, and it's coming into the market, which means demand is increasing really, really fast. So what happens when the supply of, let's say an apple, we'll give an apple, for example, apple supply is decreasing, but a lot of people really want apples. Well, that means whoever's selling apples can increase the price because it's worth a lot more. It's a scarce asset. Bitcoin's similar, except there's nobody really selling it other than peer to peer to individuals or like an institution to an individual. So decreasing supply, increasing demand, price goes up. Simple as that. And that's probably going to increase for the foreseeable future. However, what happens when the amount of Bitcoin that's being produced stops? What if it doesn't, there's no more Bitcoin to produce and people keep holding? A lot of people have steady hands. People don't want to sell because they believe they have the conviction that it is eventually going to be worth 100, 200, 400, a million, you know, dollars. And there also might be future utility that's unknown. So that's another reason why people are holding it. Exactly. And so there's... There's, there's a, a ton to it, but it's because nobody is making decisions, it allows that basic economic principle of supply and demand to truly take hold of its price. And, and, and that's what Matt meant earlier by price discovery, right? Like yes. it, it's, it's, it's now discovering its true value. What are people willing to pay for something that they know is limited? If I own one Bitcoin, I know that I own one out of 21 million of all the Bitcoin in the system. And if you think that money's going to continue to come in, it's only going to go up. Yes. And I'm not a financial advisor, so I don't take that as gospel, but that's just why I own Bitcoin. Well, and, and a lot of things can make the price go down, but that would be a situation of Bitcoin losing confidence. And currently, and for what I think the foreseeable future looks like is that there will really not be any regulation and there hasn't been really any regulation that has truly stifled the free market aspects of Bitcoin. You know, there's been exchanges created. There's been protocols for them to follow different regulations for being an exchange and holding wealth and distributing that. And, and there's going to be a different, uh, more in-depth taxation on the subject, but that doesn't fundamentally interfere with 
what Bitcoin is doing. And that also is why some of the way larger money is getting into the space because it still has the free market aspects, but now it is regulated in such a way where there are basically businesses pioneering this and wanting to drive this so it can be adopted, not into the mainstream financial world, but still for those people that live in that space to participate in that, in that space. And when you're thinking about how much money is available in that space, you can take one or 2% of it. And you can assume that the market cap of gold is a pretty good reference tool for some type of future market cap for Bitcoin. And the market cap is a what five hundred uh, billion for Bitcoin. It, it crossed six hundred billion today. All right, six hundred billion. So it was four hundred billion like a month ago, and so it's growing pretty fast. Gold is pretty much sitting there, rightfully so, and it probably should at nine trillion dollars. Yeah, and, and, and so just, sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say, if you think that Bitcoin is going to be half as valuable as gold, it still has about an 8x increase within its intrinsic value. Then. So the 30000 to $33,000 price tag is an irrelevant point if you're holding it for the fundamental reasons and you have the capital to never sell it just in case you get into an emergency. And then there's also just a likely chance that if you do, you might be in a better position when that time comes. However, there's different risks associated with that then. Um, and, and, and one other thing too is just beating a dead horse here you you said you'd be holding until you realize that price appreciation that's that's a pretty conservative estimate of saying it's 50 percent of the value of, of gold's total market cap you also have to think that as interest rates continue to decrease or and, even stay the and, same or stay the same or go lower you know to negative to to, to, to negative interest rates people aren't going to want to own bonds anymore they're not going to want these fixed income assets. And this this gets to another level of complexity. Uh, yes, which is why I'm not going to go too deep into it, other than the fact that it is, the bond market, the fixed income market, is a $100 trillion market. So you take fractions, you know, just very small percentages of that and assume that Bitcoin cannibalizes it, or just crypto in general cannibalizes it, and those types of investors start to see the value of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other cryptocurrencies, you just have to assume that the market cap is obviously going to be beyond $4.5 trillion. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not doing any like rigorous analysis. I'm taking this based off incomplete information. Yes. But at the end of the day, you know, 2 plus 2 is 4. That's pretty obvious. I can connect the dots here. Yeah, and many people are concerned about regulation and different things, but and and, it, and it's def if you don't think that the the United States government is going to put up a fight, you're wrong. Like I, there's plenty of people who are so bullish on Bitcoin they don't think that anything is stopping it. But you have to be realistic with yeah. yourself. There's it's going to increase and decrease as a result of this news and as a result of these new regulations. But I think at the end of the day, it's in the United States' best interest to regulated in moderation but smart regulation um, of course they don't want it to be used to, to finance 
illegal activity or terroristic activity. Of course not. That's but, a punchline. But but man. the United dollars States freaking, dollar is yeah, more is, is used line. more for human trafficking, and, drug cartels, yeah. and terrorism than any other currency. And so a lot of this is headline news stories and different things, and some of those are even intentional to to have big money be able to take advantage of a of a small correction along the way of going up. And so it's just fundamentals, dude. And you got to take the bet based on what you know, based on what I know that. Yeah, there's going to be a ton of hurdles, but it's still just worth the risk, dude. It's like the asymmetrical risk profile, right? So uh, whatever you put into something, what is the likelihood of it going up versus going down? And at what percentages do those reconcile at? If it can go up 10,000%, let's say, and it can only go down your initial investment of 2000 and that 2000 doesn't mean a whole lot to you in the retrospect of your life. It's a good bet. Now I'm not saying there's 10,000 X on Bitcoin, but it was a rate riskier situation back in the day. And it sure is shit already 10 X by 10,000. Yes. And in what Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin, when he published the white paper, he said the whole point of Bitcoin is as each person comes into the network and they they adopt bitcoin the value of the network itself increases per each additional user this is otherwise known as network effects but it i don't know if it necessarily had a name at that point in time or it wasn't as popularized um, but he was basically describing network effects that as more people join it the system itself intrinsically becomes more valuable um, than just as as being finite because in order for it to be valuable and it needs to be a medium of exchange to some extent, or I need to be able to send it to someone else or multiple people need to see it as valuable. So as more people begin to see it's valuable and players like PayPal and Square enter the space, it's only going to further increase its value. Yeah. And and it's it's going to so be- So give an example of a company that can everybody understand. I'm thinking of one right now. Facebook. Facebook, yeah. So can I- More get- users equals more value because- well, there's, there's multiple forms of network effects on Facebook. You can think of it from a, a user standpoint. Well, let's think of it or, from a user standpoint then, to start off with. Okay, so from a user standpoint, and I guess I'll dive into the second part of the user uh, benefit as well, but if I want to connect with somebody, uh, you've probably heard in the early days of Facebook being able to connect with people from across the world that you met at one point in time, but you haven't kept in touch with them, you don't have their phone number well. Now, because there's a high probability that that person's using Facebook. You join Facebook, you type in their name, they show up, boom, you're connected with them. The more people that are on there, the higher probability that you're going to be able to connect with people you know, make lasting relationships, things of that nature. So as each person comes into the network, the network itself becomes more valuable. Now that's just a peer-to-peer aspect. But then you look at it from a business standpoint, if you're trying to advertise to users, as more people join Facebook, Facebook yeah. is able to collect more data. They're able to understand their users better. They're able to sell ads more precisely yes. to individuals. So it then makes the marketing spend more efficient for businesses because you know exactly who you're targeting, whether it's like what their hair color is or you know how old they are or where they travel frequently because Facebook is collecting all of that data. And if you think about it from way back in the day, Mr. Mark Zuckerberg was very keen on this because he waited a long time before he allowed ads on there because he knew that 
basically the dependence needed to reach a certain threshold of the user in order for ads to be injected in a manner that would not jeopardize the continuation of the network effect. Exactly. And I think one of the growth principles of an organization that has network effects is you subsidize early adopters. So that's why, let's say, Uber is another example of an app that has um, network effects. If you shared an Uber, a link to the Uber app with a friend, you would potentially get a $10 credit and your friend would get a $10 credit. That's called subsidizing early adopters. It's because they're literally willing to just bleed money. And that's why a lot of venture capitalists and investors are willing to bleed money so that they can get as many users as possible because then you can leverage that network of users and bring them to potential customers because at the end of the day that's what organizations who are advertising on Facebook that's what they that's what you know they are they're customers of Facebook as well just as we think we're customers but we're really not with the product it's a whole nother discussion but network effects adding value to both sides both in the supply and demand side all right, so I have something to come back on that subject because uh, that's also the crazy phenomenon of uh, business operation that is, you know, it exists all the way back to Amazon, but it's become popular as of, let's just say, the past five years for real. Um, but do you want to finish up on the relation to Bitcoin to the network effect or have we hit that home yet? I think we've hit it home, but I'll just have one final thing to say on it is in order for Bitcoin to be valuable, many people have to agree that it is valuable. That is why any currency or any asset has value. That's why it says in God we trust on the United States dollar bill. I don't know the last time I had a physical dollar bill, but that's it. I know it says it on there and that's because we trust this dollar is worth $1. So the more people that adopt Bitcoin, the more we start to say, hey, millions of people, or I don't know, billions of people agree today that one Bitcoin is worth at least $33,000 or whatever the price is. Right. So, and the more people that begin to agree, the more people will own it. And as trust decreases away from these other currencies, it will go towards Bitcoin or other scarce assets. And then I can then exchange that currency with you just as if I was going to give you a $5 bill. I would instead send you some Satoshis. Yes. All right. So one more thing on the subject, then we can move on from Bitcoin, even though I'm sure we'll mention it again, is that if you if you are not familiar with an investing portfolio, which this year was my first time really diving into that subject, and uh, I, you know, I made some uh, decisions and those were good decisions, but looking back, they weren't the best decisions, right? But it doesn't matter. The decisions had to be made and that's an intuitive place that you'll have to get to. But the concept of one share or basically one Bitcoin is fundamentally in your brain. And so uh, what the percentage of increase looks like in any portfolio, based on whatever you think the risk is, is still the percentage increase. So it's all relative to how much money you have, right? And I just think people forget that like $100 is still $100. And it's going to be worth less than $100 
at some point in the near future. No, even the next day. Because yeah. if you look at the time value of money, a dollar today, which is which states that a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. Yes. And 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 that's without all of the uh, you Inflation. know devaluing of our currency going on. Yeah. But what I'm saying is is that you don't need to allocate any substantial amount of money. There's no dollar amount that's appropriate, right? Because the cool thing about Bitcoin and maybe some other things, but Bitcoin especially, is you can buy any amount that you want and there's literally no walls stopping you. And there are so many other investments like I hold rental real estate and I love it. But it, it takes you getting qualified for a loan and it still takes the homework and it, then it takes actual work on top of that, including a large amount of time so that it may be more profitable for you. And, and it's a great investment, but the barrier of entry is still real. And so the barrier of entry into the stock market since Robinhood has been created is not. But there are a lot more things going on in the stock market than there really is in Bitcoin because it's essentially just a store of value for the most part. And so, in my opinion, your understanding of a marketplace actually is easier to grasp in Bitcoin. It just might be more foreign. And there's no dollar amount that's required to do anything with. And I, I also will say that that doesn't, that, that doesn't mean to say that, oh, well, you can just throw money at it blindly and you don't need to educate yourself. Correct. Don't take our word for it and just like exactly. go in there and buy it because that's not the smart thing to do. Neither of us are financial advisors. We do this individually for ourselves. We're putting our money where our mouth is. But I will always encourage people to go beyond what I'm what I believe and to go see what other people are saying, what other smart people are saying. And I think you just have to actually because yeah. even if you even if you trust your trusted person, dude the price is probably going to go down at some point and scare you. And if you sell it, then you're in the cyclical role of being the loser in the market. If you're a, if it, a lot, far too many people sell at the bottom and far too many people buy at the top. Well, cause dude, cycles. here's the deal. You don't lose money until you sell. Exactly. And so unless you need that money for food, what the fuck are you selling for? So, so you should always have that, those basic necessities taken care of investing I, I personally like to pay myself first. I know what I can pay myself because I know what I need for my necessities after that. Uh, you know, go discover that, what works for you yourself. But um, I think I just wanted to drive home a point is that there is a risk with Bitcoin or with the introduction of a lot of these apps like Robinhood is because it doesn't require people to be educated. Yes. It just requires you to have a bank account and a phone. And although that's great and it democratizes the access to the stock market and to a lot of these things, which previously, which does create wealth for many people and for decades people who were middle to lower class didn't have access to it. Well, right? there was an intermediary but that you needed to get to. There was and in order barriers. to talk to an intermediary, you had to have enough money to make it worth their time and, and blah, blah, blah. Exactly. And so it's all fine and dandy, right? It's great. But if you don't educate yourself, which there is nothing that requires you to get educated. That's a huge risk. But because, it's a freedom that but, is great. It's just that, again, that part is foreign. But if you don't understand that people with big money will begin to take, just like Facebook has data, Robinhood has data. 
Yes. And they can, their Robinhood doesn't actually hold any shares. They're just an intermediary again, but they're charging a fraction of what a financial advisor would charge or someone else who's advising you. So they're, they're essentially passing along the, the trades to other institutions. And when you have volumes of data like that, of what people are buying, you there's, there's room for arbitrage, which is basically buying something at a lower value than it's actually worth and selling it for more later on. So you're just making profit off of an unknown um, market efficiency or deficiency um, or inefficiency, sorry. Um, But what I'm trying to say is you should always educate yourself because I'm really fearful of this quote unquote bubble. And when it pops, if it does pop, or if you even see a correction, I think a lot of the volatility that we've seen in the market even since 2017, which is when a lot of the volatility really kicked in, it's because which is the Bitcoin market specifically. Well, no, in the stock market too. Since Robinhood's been around, I oh remember, yes, yeah, yes, yes. I remember yes. I was a senior in high school and I was looking at Robinhood and I signed up for a Robinhood account. Like I, no senior in high school should be allowed to do that. Were you 18? I was 18. Um, and so, well, so, so, I mean, so, wait, wait, wait. I get it. Wait, I get it. Wait. You should be allowed to do that. I'm yes. sorry. I shouldn't. I, I shouldn't speak that. You should be allowed to do it, but you shouldn't be allowed to. No, Go no, into no. it without knowing the risk. Well, and no, because that's fucking capitalism. Okay, you're right. Now, I take that back. <laughs> Here's so the deal. Here's the deal. No, no, no. Sorry. Here, wait, sorry, wait. Can I, let me just say one thing. Go ahead. We need a restructure of our education and the ability to self-educate because you are lack, you are ill-prepared for the freedoms. And that or is I don't mean 100%. you. I mean there's a lot of people. Pre- you indefinite yes. you. Yes, I get it. And um, I guess the point I'm trying to make is a lot of people didn't realize – what was driving volatility. And I think it was this entrance of um, retail investors. And you look at the charts for Robinhood, E-Trade, um, what are some, Webull, a lot of these applications, it just skyrocketed since COVID. Well, you get YouTube doesn't have anything people, to do. Like but, sign up for free, yeah, blah, blah, and, blah. And a lot of those people will probably go to jail at some point because the SEC is going to come knocking on their door and they're going to say, you're giving financial advice to people. So let's hope they're all being smart enough and they're following the proper precautions um, to, to advise people, hey, I'm not a financial advisor. But what I'm trying to say is that before you enter a market, you can buy before you educate yourself, but at least don't sell until you educate yourself because you run the risk of letting fear take over. And when you do that, you have to assume that someone else is going to follow those same actions. And then you just have this multiplier effect, which causes these corrections to be much larger than they need to be. So I'm not telling you to buy or to hold or when to do it at what price, but just at least educate yourself because I have personally made poor decisions early on because I didn't understand something and that scared me. So I would sell. And that is in my opinion, look back and it was dumb. Luckily it didn't cost me anything really because I bought back in shortly after and it was very small price difference. But if you don't truly understand it, you just, potentially put the whole market at risk, right? Because you have to assume that other people are following in your footsteps. And I think that everyone benefits the more information that's out there. And along with this access to the stock market, we also have access to information, whether it's Google, whether it's investor reports, I don't care, get good information, trust yourself, hold yourself accountable, etc. Yeah. Um, and, and you don't lose money till you sell. And Facts. It, 
it doesn't matter what anyone else says because, dude, there's YouTube videos, there's podcasts, and there's everything on many, many different subjects. But when you really dig into the written print, when you find long-form articles that tend to break off into other areas to make a full picture of the conversation around either Bitcoin or even Tesla. There was a lot of conversation around that company for a lot of years. And of course, it was in the publicly traded market, so it got a lot of attention. And there was a lot of investors, family offices that were under extreme pressures to sell uh, Tesla for many, many years. And so there are winners and losers of that. And there was tons of emotion involved in that run. And the same is true for many investments that people choose to make when they don't fully understand it. And it's the manager's job to fully understand it. So I've witnessed people talk about their experience where they're literally like fending off their entire investor pool in these conversations to trust them and trust their knowledge because it's extensive. And so you can do that as an individual on some things to improve your situation, in my opinion. And so that is why I think hearing about what people say about it is 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 great, but you have to actually spend the hours on whatever the hell you're going to do. I don't care if it's buying a piece of real estate because it's going to make your mind calm because there is no free ride without a storm. Like there just isn't in anything. And I've come to realize that. And I didn't, I didn't need to, uh, learn the lesson of selling something too early the hard way. Cause I just never participated in it because I didn't understand it. And then when I did, I, I really stuck to some principles that were relayed upon me. And, you know, looking back at it, it's either two things. I could have a lot more money now, but I wouldn't have been able to sleep at night properly. And that likely would have had all tons of other implications in my life. So it's a hard concept to grasp as somebody new because you're literally just the only one doing it, right? Like nobody in your life may even know what you're doing now, whether it's buying stocks, Bitcoin, any of it, because you can literally do it all without people. Dude, and you can do it in one click like 40 years ago that was not a Dude, thing you did you had to call 40 well 20 i don't know i, don't I know. guess i wasn't around so yeah uh i don't know um i just know that the freedom is fabulous it's also really dangerous but it's it's i, I don't know i think it's tough to have moderation of freedom this is a whole nother conversation but it's like you either need full-blown free markets or you need like really smart regulation. I don't care which way you lean, but when you but, start but, getting dumb regulation, there's a lot of negative consequences that come from that. Yeah, but dude, there's just a lot of people involved in making regulation. So inevitably, it's very hard to make people agree. And I think that even very smart people, when you get enough of them in a room and they have to compromise, it comes out stupid. Um, and stupid is a relative term. Stupid to who, right? And so that leads back to incentives. Uh, 
because the outcome of regulations might be different for different folks. Yeah. And I think incentives is one of the things we mentioned was where we potentially saw this conversation going when you were discussing offline. And I think at the end of the day, like we have a system where, where people really, they, they give people a lot of credit for what they're really doing. And they think there's a lot of conspiracy theories going on um, of this big master plan, which whatever, maybe there's, I don't know. But the way I like to look at it is, is people aren't just looking at the obvious of like, why is the world in the state that it is today? It's because l- just isolate people in leadership positions, pe- decision makers, and ask what are their incentives? And when you look at what a lot of people's incentives are, it's not to like drive the outcomes that most people agree should be driven towards. For an example, like in, and I don't know if this is all hospitals, but I know um, some hospitals, the way that they are funded, whether it's through the gov- government is funding them or you know, private investors or donors that are funding these hospitals, it's driven based on supply turnover. So the more supplies that they're like using, they're going to get funding for those supplies like the next month or the next quarter. So they're not incentivized to efficiently use resources or they're not, which they're actually advised to do the opposite or incentivized to do the opposite. Whereas shouldn't the incentive, and we don't have to dive deep into this, it's just my idea of healthcare is like, it should be to drive optimal outcomes for people and to make people healthier, not make sure that the more resources are used as they're being treated or not. But you, you know, you bring up a good point and basically it's efficiency and the incentive is not to drive efficiency. The problem is we are now in a world competitive environment where I actually think that just for the overall benefit of Americans, we kind of need to focus on that more because we've had the luxury of being inefficient for a long time. And, you know, you look at government uh, budgets, right, for education, um, they have to spend their uh, allocated funds in order to not get a reduction for the following year. So, you know, I have a couple of friends of mine that work at different companies that sell to K through 12 in different regions and stuff. And, you know, do they use all of the things that they acquire per year? They find a way to place them, but were they necessary to spend? Uh, No, because when you look at their business and what they need, it, it just simply wasn't. But they had to be allocated in a certain amount of timeline. Can't roll them over. It jeopardizes the funding for next year. And at the end of the day, there's probably some more details on the subject, but it's it's a problem because of competition. And I know it's kind of hard to grasp because I still don't really grasp it. I think it's impossible to know what this looks like, but whether it's our elections or the news or tariffs, like you're talking about other countries or you're hearing about other countries far more frequently than you did when I was growing up through high school and even in college, because there just wasn't as much tension. And we have a situation where now everybody in the world is doing very similar things to America, which is stimulating their economies and stuff like that. I still don't really hear much about China, Russia. I don't really hear about it's America and Europe basically. And so, 
and a lot of that's intentional because we don't have access to information from those countries, but yes, continue. And I haven't like gone out of my way to dig into it because that would be a very time consuming endeavor. But you know, efficiency ties into exponential growth. And I think that if you take a look at China, like I don't care what you think about China. I just don't care. I don't care about communism. I leave all that aside. When you take a look at their exponential growth based on efficiency, they've done a really good job over the last 40 years. And believe it or not, maybe their political structure actually allows for that. Um, well, and this goes back to what I meant earlier about you either need full-blown free markets or you need really smart regulation. And I'm not saying that China's smart in any way, like, but when you look at the outcomes that we tend to look at for successful nations, such as like GDP or um, let's say like the average like living um, standard of people. And exports and, to and, imports. And exports, but it, a lot of those things have like continued to go up over time in China. And that's because of the type of regulation um, their regulation is smart in the sense that it's achieving the outcomes that they want. I'm not saying the outcomes are good per se or whatever, but, but what it they're doing is... It comes with the sacrifice of their population. Of course, and there's a ton of negative things, so by no means... I, I'm not even going to go into that topic, but like we have just become very relaxed, Yes, and we have been chilling at the top for the last 150-plus years as America, whereas China was once the number one or number two world superpower like between 400 years ago all the way up to about 1850 i think they really dipped into that like number three spot and then it was a pretty steep decline for the next hundred or so years until they have begun to climb out of that um after around world war ii and and now we see america declining and china increasing exponentially you can literally look across any category and you will see that America is decreasing, whether it's like education or technology or output, trade, military, uh, reserve status. China is increasing and pretty exponentially in all of those categories where the United States is literally declining in all of them. And the data that I'm using to, to state that is all pre-COVID data. Nobody's done the analysis on a post-COVID world. And I mean, if you pay attention at all, you can tell China's coming out of this, unfortunately, a lot stronger than the United States. Yeah. Yeah. And reasons for that are almost irrelevant, but that, that is the way it looks. And going back to efficiency and exponential growth, you know, it's a weird time because technology has been integrated in fast fashion to, uh, you know, my industry, um, which really always had the capability to do many and of these things. What's your industry? My industry is home mortgage. Got and it. so I am on the sales side. And so I do have an incentive to keep the face-to-face interaction uh, going the best I can. Now, that face-to-face has turned into a video face-to-face and it was because of necessity, but when you look at the functionality of it, it does its job, right? And it does its job in less time, and it saves both parties time. Now, I don't think it's the optimal way to do business as an entirety, but there's a shift in what we 
always had the potential to do the technology to actually do the adoption just wasn't there right and it's because a lot of people believe that being in the same room and having that office space and human interaction had this intangible benefit but we're going to see what that looks like because it might have just been a habitual nature of humans that was hard to break and so there's many other industries that you can't do that with but for mine it literally allowed productivity to increase this year by volume. We measured it in millions of funded loans every year, right? And then you take a look at how many hands you were uh, using to do that. And it would have been physically impossible last year to do the same amount of volume and still have been obligated on the same amount of human interaction, meetings and places and different things. It would have been physically impossible. You couldn't have done it if you stayed awake for 24 hours a day. There's literally, I can't remember who said this, and I, I don't think it's someone that's uh, viewed in a historically favorable view, so I'm not going to say who I think said this, but um, I believe it's the saying is there are decades that go by when days happen, and there are days that go by when decades happen. And what we just experienced and what we're currently experiencing are when days or weeks or months are going by and we're experiencing decades of change in these last few months that has been building up and was kind of priced into the market or so we thought for a little while. And then, as we know, people don't like to change, especially in America, when they think, well, the way we're doing things is just fine right now. We can continue as is until boom. Yeah. And then you are forced to pivot. And... Um, to kind of add on to this, we talked about zombie companies or zombie individuals earlier. And like, I think that there's a lot of benefit from going through what you just described. I mean, look at the volume, look at the benefit to your industry when those who are capable of adapting and will ultimately survive and then thrive beyond that, they, they're in a good position, but these zombie companies will ultimately hold the entire system back Yes, because they're allowed to survive because you're just giving them rations and they're yes. not actually thriving. They're just dead. Hence the zombie. They're alive, but barely breathing. Yes. Um, and, and, and that is the situation with individuals as sad as it is. And it's because that's necessary. It truly is right. Like if you can't go out there and work in your profession right now, you got to be subsidized, but that isn't the same for a business owners, uh, irresponsible and reckless decisions, right? And now it's really hard to distinguish everybody because of this COVID and this massive difference in regulations that inhibits free uh, freedom of earning a living from a business to an individual to a corporation, doesn't matter. And so what is the other side is that there is still like sacrifices, however, being last to adopt a new behavior in an environment where that behavior might be necessary or beneficial is is what you don't want to do in my opinion and and so it it's 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 difficult to analyze a zombie company for many people versus a company that has enough liquidity to keep on the business plan of creating exponential growth with a true game plan to profitability. So how the hell 
do you decipher the information from the disinformation of, I'm going to just use Tesla as an example, because of course it works. That company was not a zombie company, but it could have been confused with losing money every quarter while it was still being publicly traded or Uber or even Amazon. So, so what's the difference between those and zombie companies? If you could like just hit that. Yeah. I think to me, the difference between that is, is like future potential growth and like, what's their total addressable market. So for Tesla, a lot of people thought that the total addressable market stopped with the automotive industry which is vehicle sales, which right? is vehicle sales, one time vehicle sales, which is how car manufacturers make money. Chevy, Ford, GM, whatever. Sorry, Chevy is GM, GM, Ford, whoever. They don't make money when I buy a used car of theirs. They only make money on the initial sale price, probably to dealerships. And even though Tesla has a more efficient model in that sense, because, be, because they're selling direct to consumer correct. and they also have software as a service and like subscription sales. So you're, you're paying monthly many times for things like the full self-driving package or whatever other add-ons performance updates that you want. If you just look at it as an automotive company, assuming that you calculate all those added, you know, uh, factors into it, which many people didn't, it still would have been seen as way overvalued in the market. However, when you factor in full self-driving, when you factor in battery technology, what it's going to be doing for climate change, what it's going to be doing as a technology company, how it integrates with all of Elon Musk's other companies, it's it's very clear that this is not just a you know six hundred billion dollar company. That it's much more than that, and it's still difficult for many people to get their head around. And I think they just just uh, had a. Across the 500,000 vehicle delivery mark, which is a huge milestone for Tesla. It's proof of concept. It's annually of their exponential growth. Um, So that's a very big deal. I think yesterday they just had 100,000 vehicle reservations for the Model Y in China. So to break that down, just this year, it was like 80,000 Q1, uh, 89,000 Q2. And then it jumped up to about 130, and they needed 180 to hit the 500 in a year. And keep in mind, Elon Musk made this prediction 3.5 years ago. And if you didn't deep dive and maybe even had a visit to their manufacturing facilities, you would have thought that was just some random goal out of somebody's mouth. But the difference was is that this particular company actually had a plan to get there. And I missed out on the whole thing up until it was far, uh, far more apparent. But then the risk is lower, right? Like I have more information to make a decision as a regular person. So yeah, that's why I still got in on it. And I still believe that when you take a look at their manufacturing facilities that they're building all over the world, Now you're talking about an instant international market when those are up and running. And uh, I'm drawing a blank. What's the what's the main company that's affiliated owned by Tesla? They're solar. Oh, Solar City. Yeah, they acquired them, and that is another extension of Tesla, which is 
energy and roofing and then battery technology for the home for charging your vehicle exactly. at your home being and then entirely they have off the, the grid. superchargers that are placed all over the nation for charging stations which theirs is currently the largest and almost 100 percent by a lot by a lot so so that's what the losing of money has built it built something you can't lose money and not build anything well yeah you're you're building out while, while GM and Ford, they may be investing in battery technology, and that's awesome. Where the heck are people going to charge them? You know what I mean? Tesla mapped out. That was game plan day one. How do we get someone from California to New York solely on the supercharger network? That's how they, the first superchargers that they ever installed throughout the country, it was so that you could get anywhere you needed to go on a supercharger. And then you built out based on demand and like, people who were buying it from there. Um, but And that process is still not even complete, right? It, that's how much effort and resources it takes. And this has been going on for so many years. And, dude, I remember, like, telling you to basically pound sand like we had conversations, I don't know, probably a couple years ago, a couple years ago, two years ago, probably. And even when it was like a $200, $300 share price, maybe that was even like, dude, maybe that was even like a year ago. Like literally. It started pre-split, I think at the beginning of 2020 was $73 a share. So that's like $360. No, so we had this conversation inside of a year then. And I'm just like, I basically blew you off. and was just like, nah, dude, you're just fucking out of your mind. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I, I, I've been following Tesla since I was a, I'm not going to say how young I was because it's embarrassing. Yeah, but I just thought you had like a hard six on years ago. Yeah, I loved Elon. Well, you did, but I it did. actually translated into uh, an understanding about his companies that I didn't have. Well, because because I, I just like connected the dots intuitively and I was like, oh my gosh, this company makes sense. But a lot of people, and then when you try and explain it to someone and they're just not convinced, it forces you to, you're, if you have as much conviction as I think I did with something like Tesla or Bitcoin, or I mean, we talked about things like Netflix at one point. Yeah. And, and like it forces you to go and do the research on these companies understand it contextualize it into the world that we're living in today and also see and it like from the your own individual perception of that world because that's all you got yes but then also try and see it through someone else's eyes True. too because if you don't do that like like i don't own a tesla i don't know how great it is to drive a tesla i've never driven one exactly but you listen to other people and everyone freaking loves driving teslas yes and Keep in mind, they don't spend any money on marketing, which is also highly unusual. Which is insane. Yeah. And a lot of people, I'm going to call it Glassgate, when the Cybertruck glass broke. That was beautiful marketing right there. It was... Uh, Tons of publicity, whether it was intentional or not. Yes. Um, it was It was a Yeah. The whole story of that Tesla and Elon throughout the transition uh, was, was wild. But it doesn't matter. Any company in the world that doesn't have to spend money on marketing, that's like a large portion of what a company usually spends money on. Um, and so where does that leave us when you talk about – like Tesla's not the only one, right? You can talk about uh, basically Kathy Wood's funds – which are, again, kind of a simpler avenue for a regular person to participate in a lot of this disruptive technology um, that is trying to achieve exponential growth. And it's made available on the public markets 
in an unusual fashion. But yes. but so it is probably a lot easier to do your homework on Kathy Wood and her funds in general than trying to do it on each individual stock. Because um, at that point, you're investing in a platform, like an innovation platform, yeah. which is how they structure their funds. Um, and I mean, we don't have to dive in too deep to that, but I mean, it's definitely like the average person does not have the time or the expertise to do the research necessary and to, to come to the conclusions necessary to make really, really high quality investment decisions that meet the market, which is why so many people just invest in, in mutual funds that track the S&P 500 or things like that. So it's, it's important that if you're going to just do that, they're trusting experts because experts are choosing who's included, who's not. It's important to follow experts if you can, right? People who are licensed to do these types of things. And I think like ARK Invest is a perfect example of like, they are so forward thinking and they are years ahead and they have their track record. Well, the best way to, to check if someone is, is good on their word is go back and find a YouTube video or an article on the internet three, four years ago yeah. of what they are calling for shots in three to four years, match it up to 2020. Did they meet or exceed those expectations? And ARK Invest is literally on the money, if not exceeding all of their expectations. Yeah, Chamath once said that uh, a good investor... Chamath Paliapatia. Right? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and Google him. It's too long to even explain who the guy is. But a good investment is always the most unpopular investment when you choose to invest. You have to be contrarian. You have to, you have to just like Warren, I think Warren Buffett said, when other people are being greedy, you should be afraid. And when other people are afraid, you should be greedy. It's something along those lines. Meaning when people are afraid and selling, you should be buying. When people are buying, 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 you should probably be selling because that means it's coming to a head. And, and generally I would say that someone able to recognize that is just knowledgeable enough in their homework to, to see it. And I had limited time. I did pretty good with my time. And now I would like some type of funds, dude. Like I don't want to have to continue doing rigorous research, which I only did on a couple things, dude, like literally a couple. And that's the only thing I got active in. Um, and so throughout the year your perspectives change and your desires change and once you place something somewhere right like i'm not a trader i'm not going to be a trader i'm not going to be a good trader even if i tried to be a trader well, and a lot of people don't realize this but being a trader is actually so much harder than just being profitable because not only do you have to make a profit greater than what the market would do on its own but you also have to factor in taxes and fees. The fees of like transacting, I mean, many exchanges, if you're actually trading, it's like so low, it doesn't even matter. But the every time you sell, you have to pay taxes on that. Yeah. And so unless you're converting it to another cryptocurrency, which then poses the risk of it going down or whatever. And well, and if you sell it for loss, capital gains, loss, exactly. also gains, blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's, dude, like, it's, 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 it's just, you might as well just hold it. Yeah. <laughs> and just allocate your time elsewhere. Yeah. Like dude, I'm, an inv I'm an investor. I'm not a trader. Yeah. And that's the important distinguishing factor. And I think that, you know, the ability to be right 
on a long-term fundamental bet is just so much higher than playing the trading game. I, I, I like literally don't even know how people think about getting into it unless it's just fun money. Like I, I just don't know how I can just me personally. It's just like a fucking long shot. Yeah. Yeah. So 2021 dude, it's been a long year and, uh, we're here and looking back, there's a lot of things to be grateful for. And it was really fascinating to see all this play out if you actually paid attention to like the human behavior and how the markets participated and that in turn is a product of human behavior, right? Um, but like, I don't know what I think the remainder of 2021 looks like because there's so much still left to be written. A lot. And everything could go to zero everything could go to the moon i don't know but it, there's it, if any if 2020 has taught me anything it's two things it is it's not to expect the unexpected but it's just to not have any expectations because literally anything is possible and even the unexpected it could be completely blown to dust because something much crazier happens that's number one number two is don't necessarily it's okay to trust experts. I'm not saying that experts are not someone to look to, but you should, I would trust myself and my research any day of the week over one expert, meaning that I would rather look and see what 15 experts are saying before I come to a conclusion because experts are humans and humans are very often wrong. And I'm going to bet on myself every single day you know, there's some nuances to that statement um, of like the not trusting experts all the time, but I'm going to bet on myself. That's, that's what 2020 taught me is I'm going to, I'm going to do my research. I'm going to study up and I'm going to trust myself. Yeah. Pretty much what 2020 taught me too. I've had uh significations of that throughout my life, but it all kind of home run hit this year because dude, there was so many, things that were posted on everything saying you should do this you should do this we should do this i can't believe everybody's not doing this and it could be literally anything from buying bitcoin to buying tesla to shorting tesla to wearing a mask mask is going to kill you getting a vaccine getting a vaccine vaccine is going to kill you and so like at what point is it just like all right how do i feel about whatever I've spent the time on looking for. Because if you're not looking for the information, it just happens to find you, I would be concerned about that information. Beca- and, and, and I'm going to dive deeper as to why, because a lot of people don't understand why you might say that. And I'm going to take a guess. So tell me if I'm right or wrong. Okay. A lot of times people don't realize that information falls into their lap, not because they were lucky, but because that is what the algorithm wanted them to stumble across. If you were searching why is Bitcoin good? Why is Bitcoin good? Bitcoin is going to make me money or will Bitcoin make me money? You're going to get an ad that is going to be like, come learn how to make a million dollars with Bitcoin. It's, it, I mean, obviously, you know, it's possible, maybe not. But things that you are searching for will then be given to you by these algorithms because they know that's what you're looking for. And you're just that much closer to a sale than somebody else. So that's why they feed you these ads. 
And it's really important. Is that right, by the way? What kind of what you were saying, or was that? Okay? Yeah, it it is. Uh, I'm gonna explain it in a different way as soon as you're done. Okay. The 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 one thing I just wanted to to say is that we have so many people that just don't want to be challenged, don't want to challenge the way they think, they don't want to be open minded, and they fall victim to confirmation bias which I thought was a pretty known concept, but apparently a lot of people don't know what confirmation bias is, which is basically... It's not, man. It's not it's, widely it's, known. And, and so I'm going to just give a quick rundown of what it is, a one sentence. It's seeking out information that confirms your pre-existing beliefs. So if you believe that something is really good, chances are you are going to naturally, subconsciously or consciously, seek out information that confirms that that thing is good or or bad if you think it's bad. And so if I keep searching about all the reasons that Bitcoin is good, I'm going to obviously then have an algorithm that exacerbates that belief. And so that's why our society is becoming much more polarized is because people are being divided into their own beliefs. And it's just like this self-selecting category. It's like the machine is learning for itself and it's just dividing us. So it's important that you seek those alternative perspectives. You stay open-minded um, and don't get caught up in what the system's trying to like feed you. And by system, I mean like the algorithm. Yeah. And to, to, to bring it back to like a more layman's term, because sometimes when you hear about algorithms and everybody knows that these software programs are capable of things beyond their understanding. Right. So sometimes you shut off when you hear those uh, words that are just another word that is often tossed around. Algorithm is one of them, right? But it's actually always been happening because there's a reason why people forever, Gary Vee just comes to mind, say that the five people that you spend the most time with are a direct reflection of most likely how you operate and, and the thoughts and beliefs that you have and they influence you, right? Well, that was inefficient compared to what is available now. And it's because you are plugged into something that has an algorithm that is doing the same thing that your friends used to do back in the day. And now it's happening at an efficient and productive and scalable manner. And it's been introduced subtly because these programs took a long time to get smart. So Netflix wasn't smart. They sent you a fucking DVD back in the day. Now, I don't even really need to look at anything besides the recommended section because a lot of, I watch a lot of the same shit I like, mm -hmm. right? But Nicole doesn't like that recommended section because it doesn't know anything about her. So, so that's why you create different profiles on Netflix. <laughs> absolutely. But what I'm saying is, is it happens subtly from a DVD being shipped to your house that you had to tell Netflix that you wanted, and then they could probably collect that data and do some sort of piss poor mailer marketing job. Now it's literally just from everything that you interact with. And it can be your web browser, Facebook, YouTube, parents. It's all in those right? cookies. They talk to each other and they can basically sync that data across sites. Any website that you might visit will have access to the data that you base that was collected on you on other sites that you have visited unless you have the proper privacy tools in place. So, so this is a little bit of a um, a little bit of a mind fuck, I guess is the proper term to call it. Because in order to recognize what's being done you have to like 
recognize that you're being manipulated. You have to be really self-aware. Yes. And and then being able to recognize and admit whatever the whatever it looks like when you start to think about these things. And that's how you change your mind on something. Because if you do a lot of your own self-searching, find information, deliberately spend your time, that creates emotion behind that. And it creates conviction behind that because you are responsible for that action. And then maybe some of those other less effort consumptive activities that you get information thrown at you I tend to look at those less valuable now, right? I might go validate that, right? I might think that sounds interesting, but that that like bounces off a protective layer at this point. And that protective layer has just been built by self-awareness, figuring it out. And then, dude, I catch myself all the time. I actually do watch the mainstream news just for the simple fa- fact of like identifying their delivery. And it's it's astonishingly clever, dude, because based on what is said a lot of times on the television is broken into segments. And if you actually isolate those segments, they literally say nothing. They provide no value. It might be a person's picture or video from the news camera that looks sympathetic or whatever. But what they said literally wasn't even a complete sentence. It was just how they feel done the other person then finished off the narrative. And so that information is essentially worthless. It is literally a waste of your time. And so that is not the easiest thing to pick up on. It's just not innately. When you're running around with subtle stimulation that many people, like we're a decade apart, let's just rough it out, right? So that's probably why it took me longer and more times of conversating with you and then uh, others and validating why Tesla. Cause dude, I, I, like, I just wasn't even trying to hear it. Like I just didn't even, it was one of those generational gaps, dude. It was too early for me. And so I experienced those conversations with people the next decade ahead of me. I mean, I don't really have them in depth anymore because that's another layer of conversation that you, you can't provide people unless they provide the effort to go search the information on their own, because I can tell somebody something all day and I'm not saying that I'm right, but based on the research I've done, I have my beliefs, right? So like in a conversation, I want you to tell me why you believe something. And if you can't, then I'm sorry, but I believe I'm right. Yeah. And I mean, and they might be right actually, it's just that they don't have sound reason and sound logic. So therefore, and I have I think, to stick to mine. Yes, exactly. And that's 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 like the golden rule, right? Like that's and, my golden well, rule. And, yeah, and my my golden rule is, I actually prefer if people tell me I'm wrong, and I mean I would like them to have a good reason, but I want to hear that feedback. I want to know where they think there's gaps in my analysis because I'm totally open to changing my mind and admitting that I'm wrong. Well, that's also the other golden rule. Yes, is if it means that okay, I. I see where my gaps are. Let me go back, assess my gaps. Yes, those gaps exist. Oh, wow, I'm now changing my mind. You're right because I did have these, you know, fatal flaws that I wasn't, uh, you know, privy to um, prior to you making me aware of them. And and we I, we live in a world. Sorry, one one quick thing. Talking about algorithms and separating people. And you know, my Facebook feed. Even if you and I had the exact same friends and same liked pages and interests, whatever our feeds would still look entirely different because of the way the algorithm separates us. 
and it puts us into what's called an echo chamber. So I'm only hearing more of what I want to hear. You are only hearing more of what you want to hear. So if you weren't open-minded into engaging in these conversations with someone who's a decade younger than you, and you were just doing what 99.9% of the population does and just says, you're wrong, you don't know what you're talking about, you would continue to reinforce your existing beliefs, confirmation bias, through these the algorithm that's basically separating us. And because we're on these online mediums now, that's where you're getting your information. And there's literally nothing connecting people with differing opinions. So now, whether it's in real life or whether it's on social media, when you interact with someone who doesn't believe what you believe, you freaking think they're nuts. Yeah. And we lose our sense of humanity and connection with one another. But it's okay to disagree. We just aren't used to it anymore yeah no you're definitely right and actually when i part of a small part of my college education was a philosophy class uh about the only class that was pretty much based on constructive feedback or arguments or debates and other than that, though, like there was no intention on the subject, right? It was more like I'm teaching you the way it is and this is this is the right way. It wasn't just set as that. It's just presented as the only way. Um, but, yeah, it's just fascinating to look at that because it's, it became very apparent on everywhere you looked, which was the Internet, because that's what we had access to primarily during this time like I don't actually spend that much time on the internet of Facebook and different things I might put something on there but looking at content on there is another activity that I didn't highly participate in for a long time because I enjoy being in the real world doing stuff well fucking not a lot to do this year right so that could potentially spin out of control really quick and so that was definitely a little tangent I can't remember how we started on that um, but all right. So my profession is real estate. My life is basically real estate in one form or fashion. And one of the goals that I would like to do w- with the money that I will hopefully generate in higher quantities from these investments that have a lower barrier of entry, such as stocks and Bitcoin and whatever else, um, is, is larger real estate purchases. But I suppose we can tie it off at after this unless we go uh, in left field. But coming from your perspective, a decade younger, what does buying real estate, it doesn't, I don't care if you touch on commercial or residential or just whatever you think the real estate market will go to. You might not have a lot of direct effort into this category right but like you still have a broad understanding and probably a bias towards innovation and exponential growth in every industry so um, i'm here to play devil's advocate on why the real estate industry really hasn't been successfully infiltrated like tesla has gotten that far in the car industry yeah so i would just preface this by saying what are we defining as being disrupted because we're talking about tesla being a major disruptor having only delivered 
500,000 vehicles this year, which really is not much compared to some of the very large auto manufacturers. And we've highlighted the added efficiencies and added value that Tesla has. So we understand that we're on the same page with that. I think that real estate is in the process of being disrupted, meaning that it's five to it's 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 basically the automotive industry five to ten years ago. So it's it's still got time. But I think you just you gave a perfect example of how the real estate industry completely was flipped on its head as a result of COVID. As a result, you adapted survived and then made a lot more money as a and result. And that was specific to the mortgage industry because people, I, I, I'm, I'm a loan officer, right? I do home financing one to four units and I have relationships with people in the commercial space to finance other products. But this is separate from the actual realtor out there okay, so because mean- they have to actually physically go do their job. Now, my so so both of them ended up with a good year in my opinion because of uh, supply and demand for the most part and interest rates, right? But I experienced the efficiency that could be done in my specific industry. And there was really no legitimate reason not to this year because it was uh, the business funneled and your job was to process the business most efficiently. Well, you do that in an office behind a computer. A realtor still has to go out there and show houses and do this and do that. So that's right now, right? However, is that part of the potential disrupting that you foresee? Foresee, yeah. Okay. You, so, so let me once again. I'm not an expert in this space, but I do have some ideas. So I will throw out my ideas, and you can correct them or let me know where the gaps are. So, if the real estate industry is anything like other industries that have been previously disrupted. Here's where I think it will go. So you have many realtors and I think it's, it's definitely not easy to become a realtor. There's lots of testing required and there's plenty of people who just don't even want to study. So that gets rid of a ton of the candidates right there. Then there's, you know, a percentage of people that pass or don't pass. Right. But at the end of the day, like if you really put your mind to it, I think a lot of people can you know, pass those tests. And, and there's a lot of realtors. Yes. I, I doubt there's more realtors than there are buyers, but there probably are points in the market where there will be more buyers than realtors and less buyers than realtors, potentially. But at the end of the day, I think that good realtors, good real estate agents will survive. And... I think it's because efficiency is doing more with less. You will be able to do more with less realtors, but only the best will survive. So how I see it potentially being disrupted, I know you have you know Zillow, Open Door, disruptors in the real estate space like that. I don't know enough about them to really know how they fit in other than that you can basically buy a home with the click of a button, which I think is super convenient but I also think that there is something about the human element of the biggest purchase of many people's lives that is super important and which even adds more credibility to the statement of the best real estate agents will survive, whereas the dead weight will go elsewhere. And I don't mean dead weight in a disrespectful way, Um, but it just is what it is. It's how the market will adjust and technology will then be used to aid that process, to add and build in efficiencies so that real estate agents can manage relationships better, get offers out better, understand the properties that they're showing better. It's going to augment a lot of the process. It's going to add value. So 
I think ultimately the best will just skyrocket and they'll, they'll be insanely successful and others will not be. So depending on how that's perceived in the long run of like, wow, this industry is very successful now, or wow, like it had a 50% attrition rate and a lot of people lost their jobs. However, it's making a lot more money. Who knows? But it also might make the home buying process a lot more efficient. People are more satisfied. Um, but I think there will probably be something, sorry, I'm going another tangent, but there will probably be something like platforms like, so Airbnb, for example, yep. right? If a real estate agent is the equivalent of a Airbnb host, meaning that say you're my host, I don't actually know you, but we have this intermediary, the platform of Airbnb that says, Hey, this is this picture of this guy named Connor. We, we trust him because he's stayed at multiple places and every time he stayed there, he's kept it clean. Okay. So that's the trust, the validation for you. And then for me, it says, well, Matt is a super host. Matt has hosted, you know, 300 people. He's 4.8 stars. He's only five stars because he talks a lot or not five stars because he talks a lot. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> but I mean, so, so, so that Airbnb then provides me the trust as they're, they are a platform that, Hey, I can trust this guy. I can stay with him while I'm out of town or I can stay at his property. It will be in good shape. Great. Well, now we'll probably have platforms in real estate that will then validate for home buyers. Hey, this is the real estate agent you want to work with based on all of your preferences and what you're looking for. And, and then, you know, same goes for the, the real estate agent is they're probably going to be able to see that these people were, were vetted. They have a decent credit score. They now are eligible for a loan or they're pre-qualified or whatever. And there's this trust, there's this medium, there's this validation. And now I'm sure that's probably a lot of what like, um, agencies, is that what they're called? Brokerages. Brokerages. Yeah. I'm sure that's a lot of what brokerages the, the, the role that they play right now. But if, if anything is ripe for disrupting from from my outsider's view, I would say it's the brokerages, but I know they have a bunch of data, but I don't think the data is probably um, clean, as clean as it needs to be, as a lot of these like tech companies have it. So I, I see a lot of like M&A in the space probably um, from the brokerage standpoint, which is ultimately gonna drive a lot of value for the end user. Mergers and, and acquisitions, by the yeah, way. Yeah, M&A, mergers and acquisitions, meaning one company will either merge with another, um, so they become one, or it's acquired, meaning a company takes ownership of the other. Right. Um, and ultimately, that'll probably drive a lot of the value um, for the end home buyer and the real estate agents who are successful. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I know that perspective doesn't take into account like loan officers or any other number of the hands that play a role in this process. But based on what you know, um, and my understanding that I just gave to you, I'm sure you can guess where appraisers or inspectors, all of these people fit in the process and how that they help play a role of trust um, in this in this validation of these new platforms that will be created. Now, I don't know who's going to be displaced and who is going to be made more valuable as a result of that, but I see change kind of happening in that fashion. Yeah, and I think the first thing that you said is is what is disruptive mean, meaning like Tesla, 500,000 cars, cool. Uh, it's a piss drop in the bucket in relative terms right now. Uh, but they're growing that number at scale to try to get somewhere, and people believe that they're going to get there. 
not the case in basically any of the real estate platforms that exist today, right? Like everybody understands what they're trying to do. Nobody believes that they're going to get there. And by nobody, I just mean many of the people involved in the industry currently and many of the outsiders still. And a lot of the traction or effort has been made on to sell your home easier uh, to start out with because with with capital that can be made pretty easy to integrate into a platform. You got to have a shitload of it, but it can be if you can just pay for the house, um, whether it's loans or whatever. If you got liquidity, you can do that and then resell it. So they're still on the stage of subsidizing the early adopters. But what the interesting thing is, is if you take a small percentage, let's just say five, for instance, well, that company that acquires that 5% of the transactional share annually in the industry, which I don't know the numbers, man, it, a lot of money is involved, right, nationwide, that company then will basically be in Tesla's position as being a disruptor because the amount of revenue that they're generating is significant enough to talk about. And then you will have to look at their profitability because it may or may not be there yet. But that's where it starts. And I agree with you that the really good real estate agents or loan officers or even title companies. Um, and, and I think that they'll be able to provide an intangible value that will exist into whatever future comes with the integration of the new platforms and efficiency to the end consumer. Now, currently there are some brokerages that are working towards that connection of human to human and being the platform. Then there are currently companies that are really just trying to cut out the agent and having the consumer trust the platform directly. And that's a hell of a lot harder to do on the buyer's side when you go to buy a house. Um, when you can't like, you can't just reverse a purchase like that either. Like trust that Airbnb is one thing because it's a, it's a weekend, right? Yeah. Or it's a week or, you know, it's a temporary stay. And in some cases I'm sure you can get your money back, but when you're talking hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in one transaction, that's not something that you can just reverse. No. And, and so I think that a lot of people, I think that's a very, very difficult psychological barrier to get people over in, in terms of trying to eliminate the human from the transaction. I really just think that there has to be something there. At one point I thought that it could go away easily. And as I've gotten older and thought about buying a property, I'm like, okay, I can understand why I want an expert in, in my court. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and you can then assess the expert based on what they, you want many experts, right? Yeah. Or, and you want high quality experts. Yes. And that's where I go back to, you want the highest quality. So therefore you, the highest quality experts will survive. Yes. Um, and what that value proposition looks like is unknown. And if you're in the loan field, what that proposition looks like unknown, because there are still, and always have been for the most part in the last recent years, um, other avenues to get financing that really don't require much human interaction. It requires the ability of the borrower to be able to do many things on their own that is complicated for other people. And there are 
all walks of life buying homes, which is pretty cool, right? Like a lot of people do maybe think it's reserved to, you know, a privileged part of the population. And, and like it is to a certain extent, but the, the, the humans in the industry are actually the ones that are really facilitating home ownership on the lower end. And that really helps our overall economy in so many different ways. So the incentive structure in that is actually to most likely have some type of hybrid for many years in my perspective. But I think the law, whatever law of nature that we see in any industry is the amount of people you need to help buy a home or give money to buy a home will need to increase in order to earn the same amount of money for yourself as it did in the previous year and the previous year to that. Well, and that's, and that's where like you may be taking home a much smaller percentage of every sale. And I don't know if that or transaction, whatever you want to call it, yeah. every deal. But if your volume increases enough to offset that, then you're great. But the chances are is that the number of transactions or deals might not increase that much, which is where this like attrition comes from and people have to leave the industry because they aren't doing good enough. And so so it's just it's 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 more beneficial for the market overall. And that's what efficiency is, is it's 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 driving out inefficiencies or people who aren't doing the best work. Yes. They'll go elsewhere. And like maybe we leave this for the next one because I feel like I can go subject to subject for almost ever. But there's some sadness into that last statement that you just said, right? Yeah, and I mean, I'm cool. With, I, I I think you can't. We can't end it without talking about the sadness a little bit. Okay, or I we agree. Can, yeah, I so, agree. I agree. So so I mean, a kind of realist perspective on this is the way that the world and the economy is supposed to function and how it's always functioned from the beginning of time is there are highs and there are lows and with those lows it comes pain it comes you know suffering un uh, suffering unemployment people are aren't able to necessarily feed their families and that's horrible and and i like i said earlier would not wish that upon anyone and i know it's really easy to say oh yeah someone has to pick themselves up by the bootstraps and figure it out for themselves and and a lot of people don't like to hear that and maybe Maybe that's naive or privileged of me to say, but at the end of the day, I don't think the government is going to help anyone. For They're not looking out for an individual. They're looking out for their own interests. And at this point in our, our journey, they're actually incapable, in my opinion. Uh, absolutely. and and But they're almost preventing the suffering right now. Well, they have been for they're probably prolonging, my whole life. They're, they're prolonging the prevention. Yes. And it's just, it's preventing the inevitable. And and I don't know if it means that what it's going to hurt What we would them. say would be the inevitable, right? Yes. And it's I don't... Yeah. still technically an opinion. Yes. And and I don't know if when that inevitability is reached, realized, if it means that it's going to be magnified or if it's going to be the sum of all of the inevitables that have been pushed out. I don't know. But... I do know that from my own experience, and I think you can attest to this as well, is that when I have experienced the most pain, I have actually come out and experienced the most progress. Because when you experience pain, 
it forces you to do one of well many things but for me one of two things you can either sit and and sulk in your pain and think about how horrible it is or you can do some reflecting figure out where you went wrong figure out what you missed and then you never do it again and and you and you learn and you adapt and you move forward yeah and and I think this was mentioned in one of the earlier podcasts, but pain induces change, right? And that was a thing that I had to learn in my life. And it was a all encompassing pain because it had to get so bad that I was willing to change. And there was addictions in there, right? But the principle remains the same. It doesn't matter when there's enough pain your human behavior will change. And that can be you hate your job. It could be you're addicted to drugs. It could be you're in an unhealthy relationship. It doesn't matter, at least from my perspective, but the pain has to be great enough for you to literally explore every other option and then actually be willing to do that option regardless of what sacrifice that option has. And that option is really drastic when it's a relationship because it's a person that you may never see again right but the pain still has to get so great that you are willing to do that to get away from the pain and that takes a healing process and all the other things but right now what i see and it's not even like i'm not saying it's anybody's fault or blaming anyone or whatever because I think I still do this every day because you're only so conscious all day. Of course. But, I mean, dude, it doesn't even really matter if it's younger kids that I see or uh, people of all age groups. Right? It's not an age group. You can say uh, a punchline about millennials being lazy. Sorry, bro. It's all people of all different generations in America, right? So I don't think it is an age thing or an experience thing. It's a reaction to the sum total of experiences throughout your life and whether you were actually exposed to enough pain to induce change or whether you're still in the cycle of that pain being subsidized. I mean, that's basically my life in a nutshell. And I think it's a really accurate reflection of some of the future issues that present themselves for our people, which just translates into our country, because we have been spoiled and to the point where you're not conscious that you are. Correct. And that's a pretty wild mental rabbit hole to go down if you're thinking about it from looking in the mirror yeah and i mean you're right it it doesn't discriminate against age or anyone everyone is is at fault in in this respect people don't want to change like especially like older generations they they don't want to change that's their fault whereas they think younger generations are too lazy to change you know it's it's and i think that Another what I would call wise person once said that if you really break down almost every decision, he just says almost because he can't think of one, but almost every decision is somehow boiled down when you really run the rabbit hole 
it's made by fear, right? So if you're afraid to play a sport, that will deter you from playing said sport. And why you are afraid is important, right? But I am afraid of missing out on the opportunities of Bitcoin, let's say, more than I am afraid of losing my money in Bitcoin. Well, and it, it <laughs> yes. Um, and it, this comes down to like, at the end of the day, a lot of the things that we've just discussed can be broken down to like fundamental. And I think a lot of people don't think from first principles, and that's something we need to teach in society. But a lot of people don't think from like, uh, or sorry, we can break this down to an evolutionary biology standpoint. And it's our core drivers and what is driving us to get to the next generation. Cause at the end of the day, whether we want to admit it or not, human beings, it's all about in, in any living being, it's all about getting their genes on to the next generation. What are you going to do to survive? You know, what's, what, what am I more likely to, to die from? Am I going to die from a lion or am I going to die from a, I don't know what coronavirus coronavirus. <laughs> I'm going to probably go towards COVID yeah, just on that, the, on that one, just because I know that I'm not going to, I'm not, there's the, the higher probability of the lion killing me. And so it's like, what are we going to, what are we afraid of? You know? And, and the decision point of, of changing and adapting it's fight or flight. Do you want to keep running away from your problems flight? Or do you want to run towards them and conquer them and, and do what's going to allow you to win? That's the fight component of it. And, and so people just don't realize that, that that's as simple as what it is, is there's a lot of things, variables that could be driving one decision or another. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to what's going to allow me to survive and put myself and my family or other dependents or people I care about in the best position moving forward. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, so to wrap it up, we good? Yeah. One, one quick thing. All right. Let's hear it. Boldest prediction for 2021. All right, so by the end of 2021, Connor Kraft has a prediction. What is it? Oh, I was asking you. Oh, fuck. I can give you mine, too, but right, I want to hear yours. All right, hold on. So, well, 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 um, my brain goes towards the price of Bitcoin on the prediction, but um, I'm I, my prediction for 2021 i'm going to give you two of them and one of them is the price of bitcoin and i do think it will hit 100k by the end of the year the other one is i will you're going to need to do some homework to validate this a year from now guys but i will be willing to bet that inflation will be basically out of control and the information that is provided you will tell you the opposite. Well, I hate to break it to you, but that is already a fact. But many people don't know that. Check out the Chapwood Index yeah. if you're curious to know more about why the CPI is not a valid indicator of inflation. Anyways, I do agree. It will continue to get out of control. I will build on top of that. And you stole my prediction. Oh, I, my bad, bro. I, no, you're good. I was going to say 100K Bitcoin as well. Let's hope that doesn't come to bite us in the rear a year from now, but got to have conviction. But if it doesn't, we got a five-year time, five to 10-year time horizon or more. Um, the second prediction, which kind of goes along with inflation, is I think that we are going to need to see 
or we not need to, we are going to see uh, the government inject probably another $5 trillion or more dollars into the economy within 2021 to keep businesses afloat. Um, because, and I guess this is maybe even a third prediction, I don't think COVID is going away as quickly as people think it's going to. I think it will be well into the summer. Um, and at, I kept predicting it was going to be shorter and shorter. And I realized that was not the case. And I think, you know, the way it's mutating and the slow rollout of the vaccine, it's going to be nine months or more from now, maybe even a year. Yeah. And the reason why I think you're right, regardless of the rollout of the vaccine, science, uh, whatever, is that there is a lot of uh, incentivizations to do something other than let it take its natural course. And so there's just going to be a lot of... uh, a lot of unknown things that influence that timeline, and and I just can't see it being influenced in the shorter direction, to be truthfully honest. And so I do agree with your uh, monetary needs during that time, and I think that that'll be the time where, you know, some of these inflation statistics will be to the point where people are just noticing them in their everyday life. Therefore, uh, it doesn't matter what information you put in front of them. Um, but I think, generally speaking, dude. It's going to be um, a very good year for some industries and a very bad year for uh, some other ones because it's going to take, in my opinion, maybe even more than this year to figure out who is just not going to make it through this. I think it's just going to be a long, drawn-out process. And I, I think I think it's actually not that hard to predict I just think it's going to take a while to realize it. Predict when it's going to shake out and and, and how all the ancillary businesses that rely on the businesses that are directly affected takes a long, long time. And there's government intervention, right? Eviction, moratoriums, real estate, all sorts of different things. So you're going to hear the crash of real estate 2021. You're going to hear all sorts of everything about everything. And the moral of the story is you need to be able to learn to adapt, survive, and thrive. And that is probably going to be necessary more times in shorter fashion. And you're going to have to do it by yourself, in my opinion. Agreed. And I think you can relate to that to any topic. And that being said, if we continue these conversations in the future, I would like to know what other people enjoy hearing want to hear about so that we can not tailor the conversation to it but touch on the subjects you know if you're a younger person and you're in the education realm still maybe that's of higher importance to you if you're coming out into the market of employment maybe that's important to you because both of those subjects probably have about an hour worth of content so let us know thank you for joining and we'll see you next time